Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When I was two years old, when I was dedicated I was laying there, practically, and I had her hold me as if I was me. I couldn't talk, I couldn't open my eyes, I, I believe my eyes were going back in my head. There was evidence of human sacrifice on this fight. One of my first questions I asked was, is there evidence of human sacrifice on Welcome back to Conspira Normal, guys. And today is August 21st, 2016, for anybody that might be listening in the far future. And today is the fifth anniversary of the passing of a great researcher, someone that uh, if I had been doing this show 10 years ago, I would have loved to have, have, have had on. And that person is was really a legend in the field of ufology and also in the uh, very much a pioneer in studying alien abduction. And that person was the author of the books Missing Time and Intruders, probably one of the scariest books that I have ever read, but yet very fascinating book at the same time. And that is uh, a man named Mr. Bud Hopkins. And Bud was also an artist, and he was also a good friend of the man that we have with us 
appearing for the third time on Conspira Normal, and that was Mr. Peter Robbins. Peter, welcome back. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be back with you. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to sit down and talk about Bud Hopkins, because I had heard you with Soraya on Where Did the Road Go? And you had mentioned the fact that it was we're coming we were coming up on the fifth anniversary of his passing. That was on August 21st, 2011. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, you know, that would be a good time to go over your association with him. We had you on back in last year talking about your work on Rendlesham. We had you back in April talking about uh, Wilhelm Reich and your interest in his work. And I thought it would be good to talk about another aspect of your life, which is your association with Bud Hopkins. And I wanted to start with how you met with him and what your association was like with him. Sure. Um, we're going back 40 years now. Wow. Um, I was a young artist uh, living in lower Manhattan, um, really living my dream. I had a, a loft down in East Chinatown. I was working during the day. This was during um, the Soho building boom, Soho being a historic district in Manhattan that up until the early 70s had fallen into... Uh, kind of quiet disrepair. It was mostly 100-year-old factories and big old wonderful buildings, many of them abandoned or unused. And uh, in the early 70s, um, a small but visionary group of realtors, um, and I, I admire these guys where realtors are not necessarily my favorite people in the world, um, <laughs> they began to turn over these buildings. Um, there were artists living in the area, uh, many of them, really all of them, illegally, these buildings were not zoned for, for residences. But you could get a huge working space for an amount of money that was so small at the time and now seems insane. You could get a couple of thousand square feet raw for a couple of hundred dollars a month tops. And this is in New York City, which is yes. pretty hard Girl. to find something like that. Oh, God. Well, yeah. now these same spaces go for millions of dollars, and wow. some of them rent for, you know, tens and tens of thousands of dollars a month. It's it's very prestigious area now and very tony. But back then, it was kind of like the Wild West, and many of us uh, up-and-coming young artists, we were journeymen, you know, workers. Uh, my specialty was framing carpentry, and... Um, it, it, we would be picked up by building crews and we'd work for a month or two on um, a space, almost always getting paid in cash. And when you'd finish, you'd have a dollars $1, $1,500 or whatever. You'd go back to your loft and you'd work for a couple of months until you ran out of money, let a crew know that you were available and go back on. Hmm. Uh, I taught painting one night a week at the School of Visual Arts, later picked up other teaching jobs. And... Um, it was working for me. I was starting to sell my work, and um, come 1975, my life changed dramatically um, with the return of a childhood memory of a profoundly uh, unambiguous UFO sighting I yes. had with my sister Helen. Um, after I kind of calmed down, trying to wrap my head around how I could have forgotten and you know, never even heard the phrase uh, repressed memory syndrome. I don't think it existed at the time. 
um, Helen confirmed our memory for me and then said, but there was more, and then proceeded to tell me something that in a matter of two minutes completely changed my life, namely um, what we in the field would now regard as hyper um, archetypical abduction-related snatches of memory, uh, many of them word for word of things I've heard more times than I can remember since. I knew my sister wasn't crazy. We were particularly close. Uh, she's an honest person. And try as I could to dismiss it, I mean, I had just admitted, we had just discussed, you know, flying saucers over the neighbor's house close enough to see windows, and I'm about to reject this. And that day I became obsessed with the subject, and here I am 40 years later. Well, to answer your question, with that as a brief backstory, um, about 10 months into this, um, I was starting to read books, um, clip newspaper articles. At that point, I had very little desire to meet other people who were involved in the work because I assumed they were crazy. I knew Helen and I weren't, but, you know, grown-ups interested in flying saucers, it just sounded dodgy to me. I had intuitively bought, you know, the uh, ridicule uh, factor. And um, one afternoon, um, I walked by a newsstand and did a double-take because there was a front-page article on what turned out to be a, a very significant UFO case that had been investigated by the writer and I, as I recall, MUFON um, named that case uh, the case of the year in 1976, looking back on the events of 75. And the writer's name was Bud Hopkins. Um, That's the year I was born, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> Peter. Well, me too. I, I just heard the coach. <laughs> and, and, um, uh, yeah, I'm very mature, immature for my age. Um, and what struck me most about it, besides uh, what a fascinating um, case it was, was how well-written it was. It was the best-written piece of UFO coverage I had come upon in my extensive almost-year career at that point. And um, the other thing that stuck in my mind was the New York art world, which I ate, breathed, and you know lived in 24-7 pretty much, is a relatively small community, even though at its higher edges, it's worldwide known and recognized to people right. who follow it. Um, and I knew that name, Bud Hopkins, as a um, late-period abstract expressionist whose work I had seen, I guess, a couple of years ago in a, uh, before that in a group show, and I, I wondered, you know, the odds were it probably wasn't him. But I simply went to my big old New York phone book, opened it up, and there was only one Bud Hopkins, in the phone book. Um, he spelled his uh, first name with two Ds. And I cold called him. And I introduced myself as another painter with a serious interest in the subject who um, was teaching painting at the School of Visual Arts, not that far from where he lived. And his first, and I also mentioned my sister's uh, memory of her experience. The very first question he asked me was to tell him about my art. A very important question for any of us artists at the time. I came of age uh, after having my work my way through as a student, the entire history of Impressionism, which I loved, but I had to let it go and move into the 20th century. Uh, I came of age in the time when conceptual and minimal art was making uh, a large impact, and I, I was working at the edges of that and 
different ways, uh, photographically as well as sculpturally and, and painting. He was not impressed, but he was interested in my sister's memories and the fact that I was another painter who was interested and invited me to come by his uh, uh, home and studio a few days later for coffee and some chat. And honestly, uh, this would now be 1976, but honestly, Nick, I will remember for the rest of my life standing at that door. It's a gray three-story building on West 16th Street and the door opening and this, you know, this guy opening the door, uh, a very memorable face, very dark hair, uh, smile, shook hands, went upstairs and I could smell the coffee and we sat down at his kitchen table and we just started to talk as two strangers uh, beginning to sort of feel each other out and ultimately um, develop the basis for friendship. And five years ago, as Bud was in his last days, um, I remember thinking back to that first day and thinking, how could I have even imagined that it would become one of the most significant relationships of my life in terms of a mentor, in terms of one of the greatest friendships I've ever had and someone who I had the honor to work at their side for so many years over the 35 years of our friendship and that that kitchen table, um, we ended up having hundreds of cups of coffee and discussions about art life and UFOs and shots of scotch and many laughs and some tears. And, um, that is how we met. Um, Within a number of months, um, I was teaching again at the School of Visual Arts. I'm very proud to also be alumni there. And um, it was a relatively small school at the time. Now it's mega international with campuses, I'm sure, in half a dozen countries and several thousand students and buildings all over the city. But at the time, many of us knew each other, and I could walk right into the founder director's office and talk to him, and I did, told him about this recent interest, and that I knew they were always looking for quote-unquote interesting speakers for the um, the student body, and I suggested that myself and my friend Bud, um, who whose work he was vaguely familiar with as a painter, that we do a presentation together on a serious aspect of the UFO phenomenon. He went for it. And so in 1977, on the stage of the auditorium of the School of Visual Arts on East 23rd Street in Manhattan, Bud Hopkins and I gave our very first UFO talks together. Wow. So uh, so you guys did a lot of the a lot of talks together that way? Um, Not like that, but... Over the decades to follow, we certainly spoke dozens of times at different conferences around the country and at different conferences uh, in different countries occasionally. Um, By 1989, when Bud was world-recognized authority on what is arguably the most complex, troubling, and I believe most significant aspect of the whole UFO question, uh, he founded a nonprofit called the Intruders Foundation that had a dual mandate. Number one, to um, offer support 
two people who had been through this experience and assist them as we were able and to educate the public. And um, at that point, we established an Intruders Foundation lecture series, which went on for many years, uh, for two-thirds or three-quarters of the year, every six weeks or so, we would bring in a speaker and um, do programs. And um, I spoke there quite a number of times, uh, obviously, as did Bud, and a few times we shared the stage there as well. Okay. We also did quite a number of television shows together. Yeah, I think there was the Unsolved Mysteries that you guys were on, uh, right? Yes, Uh, that was one of them for sure, uh, with very mixed feelings, uh, along with my sister um, and and several other people involved in uh, uh, having had these experiences. We were guests on the old Geraldo show. Oh, really? Both came away feeling he was something of an ass. Yeah, yeah. You know, very glib, but um, it's worth seeing for what it is. (laughs) I wonder if that's online somewhere, if that's on YouTube or something. Um, It may well be. I believe it's about 87 or so. I know Uh, I have an old audio cassette of it stuck away, but if you Google, uh, if you go on um, uh, YouTube, of course, and Geraldo show, Bud Hopkins, um, he also uh, appeared on the Oprah show. Oprah took it very seriously. Yeah. Um, he he his he was all over the place and um, always presented a very cogent, intelligent, and, and thoughtful presence uh, on the subject. I want to talk a little bit, Peter, about his his artwork. Uh, yes. What kind of like because you said it was kind of like a neo expressionist style. Well, he was a, a what we'll call a late period abstract expressionist. Okay, um, Bud. Um, uh, was born in 1930, as I recall, so it was kind of always easy to do the math with him. Um, 30 or 31, uh, he was 80 when he died, and um, he went to Oberlin College where he got his uh, uh, BFA uh, in painting, uh, followed his dream and moved to New York City in the late 50s at a time when it was a very exciting time to be an artist, a young artist in New York. Um, abstract expressionism was winding down, and we were right at the cusp of the birth of the pop art movement. And uh, his first loft, I think it was on West 14th Street, he told me, cost him $75 a month. Uh, big space, but a lot of money for struggling artists at the time. And fairly quickly, he was befriended by one of the great abstract expressionists, and also from everything Bud has told me, everything I've read and studied about him, Franz Klein was also one of the nicest and most decent people, and he took Bud under his wing and uh, would take him drinking at the legendary Cedar Tavern where uh, Bud discusses uh, at a a very riveting point in his memoir, Art, Life, and UFOs, which was published in 2008, a chance meeting with Jackson Pollock at the uh, the bar. Wow. Uh, Pollock, very drunk, who glared at him <laughs> and kind of got in his face a bit. Uh, but he was a wonderful painter, and his work evolved over the decades. And um, when he became Bud Hopkins, the leading figure in, in UFO research, thankfully he never put down his brushes. He painted right up until the end of his life, 
I think it was um, a saving grace for him. It was uh, a way to escape from some of the extraordinary tension and pressure of the work that we did. And um, he loved it. Um, I, on the other hand, uh, became so obsessed with the work that I walked away from painting. Thank goodness never put down my camera. I've always been a passionate photographer. But it's only in the last year or so that I have started to paint again as well and realize that I, I do need to uh, build that back to, if not what it was, as a uh, fixture in my life as well. But um, for anybody on Facebook, you can visit my Facebook page where earlier today I posted quite a selection of um, yes. his work over the decades. Yes, I did see that. It's very interesting. Very, very interesting stuff. Very, very modern. Yes. But let's talk about his, how he became interested in UFOs and then later yeah. the alien abduction research. And yeah. this was actually something that I had forgotten about. And I think I had forgotten about that he was actually involved in this. And this was the Obarski case. Yes. Yes, that's right, Nick. And I'm glad you asked the question. It's a very important one for anybody interested in the UFO subject in general and Bud in specific. Um, Bud's interest, and he was a great intellectual, and I use that word with respect. He was amazingly well-read for somebody who grew up in a fairly provincial location, um, for some, Wheeling, West Virginia. He was a consummate New Yorker. Uh, I know that he read the New York Review of Books every uh, um, week. Um, I think it's published weekly. Um, the New York Times Daily. His library was extensive in terms of history, biography. He's a multidimensional person. He is a world traveler, very sophisticated. And um, his life in New York was something that he loved. Um, it, 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 every day could be exciting and the people that he knew through the arts uh, and through the lively neighborhood that he lived in um, were wonderful, memorable characters, some of them completely unknown, some of them world famous. Um, his interest was first sparked, though, in the mid-60s. Um, going back um, to the late 50s and early 60s to a time any uh, Massachusetts resident can probably only imagine right now, um, Cape Cod, like the West Village, was once, you know, a small, quiet place with very, very modestly priced homes and residences and properties. And um, Bud, um, early on, um, I believe in the 60s, uh, had a friend who was an architect who designed a home for him um, and his wife and built it. And so he always had his summers um, in Cape Cod, where he would live and paint through the summer, uh, I think for 50 years. And um, one afternoon, 1965 or thereabouts, it was the mid-60s, walking along a beach on an overcast day, he observed a disc-shaped object, slightly ambiguous because it was not a clear sky, but there was no question. It was a disc-shaped object. Um, just coasting along above the beach, and um, it didn't transform his life, but it was very interesting to him, and he remembered it. Um, he had no interest to speak of in the UFO phenomenon per se. However, about 10 years later, 
Um, it was sparked by uh, a man named George Obarski. George was um, a neighborhood merchant who owned a liquor store on West 16th Street. And he was also a bit of a neighborhood character um, in that he was an American archetype. He was, uh, um, had been a Marine during World War II, um, I believe, um, or certainly had seen combat. Um, no-nonsense guy, um, barrel-chested, not very talkative, uh, always kind of a short military haircut. But he liked Bud, and Bud would come in there whenever um, to buy a bottle of scotch. Uh, his brand was Cuddy Sark. And they knew each other enough to, you know, make pleasantries and things. And one afternoon, as life-changing for Bud as my uh, afternoon with my sister was 40 years ago, he goes in, and George seems really withdrawn. And Bud tries to draw him out a bit, and he won't do it. And Bud got a little concerned. I knew George a little bit in the early days, and Bud sketched out his character fuller over time. He was concerned about him. And, you know, Bud, if I tell you, you'll think I'm crazy. No, I won't. You know, I'm hmm. an artist and an outsider. You know, try me. And George told him the following to the greatest degree that I can remember. Uh, several nights before, he had stayed late. He lived in New Jersey uh, and commuted by car to the neighborhood. <clears throat> and he had been um, doing an inventory of his stock. And he was heading back home on the, uh, I forget the name of the road, but it is the coast highway that runs right up the Hudson River, uh, directly across from Manhattan. Okay. And coming into the 80s, if you were to draw a parallel uh, across from Manhattan, he is on the road alone, and there's a static quietly building up on his radio. And you're not sure if you're old enough to remember, but... In the old analog days, you know, if that happened, the a way that you might solve it was pounding on your dashboard several times. <laughs> um, that did not work, and he kind of casually observed that there was lights coming up behind him gradually um, and assumed up until the last minute that it was a vehicle, a conventional vehicle, <clears throat> shades of <clears throat> a memorable scene from Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And as it got closer, the static got much worse right up until it came up right behind him, went over his car, came down in front, and continued up the road, 10 feet off the road, and it was not an automobile. Well, very shortly thereafter, it literally makes a left and heads out 100 or so yards into a large open field. I believe it's now <clears throat> not a field. Next to a very memorable Jersey apartment block, um, that's reminiscent uh, for those uh, have some sense of Los Angeles architecture of the uh, historic Capitol Records building. It's a round apartment house and quite futuristic when it was built. Okay. And it's called the Stonehenge Apartments. Nice. And he slowed down to nothing in complete shock and pulled over and watched as this thing came down at the far end of the field as it did, he could see an apparatus coming out of it, a, a landing kind of structure. It landed. Almost immediately, something lowered from it. He could see movement and beings coming down this gangplank, for lack of a more descriptive term, and um, moving about the area immediately under the, um, uh, the craft. His impression was 
that they were digging. And as quickly as it started, they went back up. The apparatus came back up. The thing rose. Um, the landing gear retracted. It tipped slightly, took off, and was gone immediately. Well, he got home that night. He shared a home with his grown-up son. And he said, Bud, and again, uh, forgive me, obviously, I'm not quoting here, but this is very much it. He said, um, I, I'm not a religious man, I'm a Catholic, but I went home that night. Um, my son was not home. He worked a night shift job. I got in bed. I pulled the covers over my head. I, I prayed to God. Um, I cried for the first time since my wife died. I thought I was going crazy, but I knew it had happened, and my son came home about dawn as he did. I told him everything, and he took it in, and he said, Dad, it's not that I don't believe you. I'm just going to head out there right now to check it out for myself. And Bud documents this brilliantly. I mean, Bud was such a great investigator, and if he had gone into law enforcement, God helped criminals all over the world. He was a brilliant <laughs> detective. Wow. And um, uh, George's son pulls over. It's early in the morning. There's not a lot of traffic. Walks out into the field and finds three circular impressions in the soil equidistant from each other. I don't remember the measurement. And marks of recently dug up soil and got home. Well, Bud was beyond fascinated. He asked George if he could look into this. Um, his curiosity had been triggered in a way that it never had been before. And over the next months, without any background in ufology or investigation, he did a brilliant job of looking into it. Um, he immediately approached uh, the doorman at the event, uh, at the, uh, the uh, building, who directed him to the man who had been on shift that night, who told him um, he had seen the lights in the field, but hadn't seen them come down. Hmm. and assumed that it was teenagers, you know, parking and making out, which was not uncommon in that area. Right. Until he saw it go up, too. And he said, you know, I have to tell you, um, there is a New York City police detective that lives in our building here that I'm friendly with, and I knew he was home because he had, you know, come home recently. I, I was sure he was up. And I lifted the house phone to call him, and as I did, the plate glass window in front of me shattered. Hmm. Now, when the police did an investigation of what had caused it, there was no point of entry. There was no radiation point. Um, the window had just shattered. He then um, connected up with the young couple who were living in the building with a uh, nursing child who happened to be up at 2 in the morning or so when this happened, who saw the thing go by their window, and so on and so on and so on. And that is the long answer to your short question of how Bud Hopkins became interested in the subject. That was one that always, the Obarski case was one that got me, because here's just this ordinary guy just kind of minding his own business, and he's just driving along, and he just sees something so strange that it just defies belief, but he just, that he was willing to even talk about it yes. was, it was amazing <clears throat> as well. You're right, Nick. And George, um, who joined us for that talk at the School of Visual Arts, and without hesitation or apology, talked to those young art students about his experience, and they got it. Um, 
he was a true American archetype, the last thing he was interested in, conservative, Catholic, veteran, kind of a tough guy, um, also um, the brunt of a certain amount of affectionate neighborhood kidding, because George didn't drink. Ha ha, he uh, runs a liquor store, owns a liquor store. Um, but he was the goods, and emblematic of so many many um, highly credible um, UFO witnesses who not only do not want notoriety or their name attached to this, they don't want money, they don't want to write a book, they don't want to be on TV, but what has happened to them has been so life-changing that they feel obligated. You know, Travis Walton, in another way, is the same kind of example, and every man who got caught up in this thing in a very different way, who... (laughs) hardly was looking for, you know, attention in the crazy manner that it came to him. But they're all around us, and um, it's one more aspect of credible evidence about the uh, reality of truly anomalous UFOs. Yeah, we got to meet uh, Travis at the Paranoia Symposium. Yeah! Uh, And... uh, you know he he really is just a down to earth guy. I mean he just <laughs> he's just a normal dude. Yes, he is. You know, and it just it, it, that's what I find amazing is when you have people that are uh, that way and they don't have an agenda to push. They're just trying mm-hmm. to figure out what exactly happened to me or what exactly happened to somebody else. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the patterns that Bud begins to find when he. Uh, starts investigating alien abduction, uh, stuff like missing time and genetic manipulation. Those, those types of patterns that he starts to see as he goes through all goes through his research. Sure. Well, let's, let's go back, uh, uh, to the mid seventies in terms of mainstream UFO research and investigation. Uh, literally an entirely white male-dominated field of study, uh, not surprising at that point in uh, time, and one in which the people doing the work, you know, good people um, looking into a genuine mystery, were very aware of how the public and Western culture perceived them. Ha-ha, you're a grown-up and you think flying saucers are real. And so, if anything, um, they were pursuing research and investigation in an understandably conservative manner. Um, Their focus was on um, lights in the night sky, uh, confirmed radar returns, um, uh, you know, military reports as they were able to get them, occasionally uh, investigating um, scientifically and, and through soil analysis and the like, um, trace cases, as we call them, where um, when organic material comes in contact with an anomalous energy source or object, um, it can transform it in ways that um, truly are not explainable in any conventional terms. Um, as David Jacobs, uh, uh, another very well-known abduction researcher who went on to become Bud Hopkins' best friend and closest colleague, um, once joked in a lecture I heard him do, um, our attention was on the cars and license plates and not the drivers. It was considered 
suicidal to, you know, bring up the possibility of, it just sounded so silly, even though it was so real. You know, little men sitting behind control panels, and even though we all had the already famous and seminally important and and well-documented Betty and Barney Hill case that happened in 1961, and a handful of others, I mean less than half a dozen that uh, even the, the specialists were aware of, this was something that Bud focused his attention on and quietly began to study it. Now, after our initial meeting, um, it was still another five years until he published his first UFO book. Um, we'd get together every couple of months, almost always with me coming over to his place, and um, we'd talk about UFOs, art shows we had seen. Um, in the meantime, Bud had been studying regressive hypnosis. And I don't mean, you know, at some little diploma mill, he apprenticed with a very respected psychologist who used uh, regressive hypnosis uh, in appropriate manners um, with her her clients uh, when called for. And he apprenticed under her for seven years. Um, She, I mean, he knew his business. um, And I had the honor of being uh, a witness to more hypnotic regressions over the decades than I can remember now. But um, So even if he didn't have the kind of, he wasn't on paper, there was no kind of diploma, but he still had the practical experience with hypnosis. Oh, yes. He right. was, I mean, he did his training, and where most people will do a training, they will graduate, and they will get out there in the world and hopefully do good work. Um, he took it that seriously and also was farsighted enough to know that people were going to be coming at him as he became more significant in the work to try to um, destroy him, take him down. Bud was not a paranoid, but he was a realist, and he knew that putting himself in the sights of you know, debunkers might well cost him, and he wanted it to be fully known and established that... You know, he had that level of competence, training, um, and expertise. And I have not been a witness to other um, hypnotherapists doing their work, but I cannot imagine any of them uh, being more careful um, and more ethical uh, than Bud was. I should also say um, that he never asked anyone for a penny, and God knows... He needed the money. Um, making a living as a painter is dodgy enough, especially if you have a family, and, uh, a building, half a building. Uh, he and a, uh, another artist uh, owned that building. Um, regulation expenses, taxes, um, and UFO work is hardly well-paying. And he did it because he felt it was the right thing to do. Um, and I've always followed his lead, basically, in, in working with people. Not that I do regressions, but I'm available, you know, as um, somebody that has a good ear and will listen to people and try to direct them to folks that can assist them if they need it. Um, it's not practical. It's not smart in a, in a 
physical sense, but um, I, I follow his lead on that. Um, and as he began to study this phenomenon, he began to observe certain patterns emerging. Now, when Missing Time was published in 1981, um, it not only changed the world of ufology, but it gave the English language a new lexicon. The phrase missing time um, is as understood to be associated with the UFO experience as the word gray is now, as opposed to what the word was 30 years ago when it was a shade somewhere between black and white. And one of the patterns that began to emerge was people from every walk of life, every socioeconomic background, every difference imaginable, would have these periods, uh, often accompanied by real memories of what had happened. The myth is that, you know, oh, I have this vague anxiety, I think I'll go see this abduction researcher, and, you know, he puts me under and then fills my head with the thought that I've been abducted by aliens because he's really a crazy person and needs to validate his own insanity. I mean, that would be funny if it wasn't so insulting. Most, if not the great majority of people, came with memories, uh, at least partial memories. It was the exception to the rule, although certainly uh, endemic, that people, they knew something had happened to them but had absolutely no idea what. And that period of missing time repeatedly was about 90 minutes. Um, it could be more, it could be less, but that was the number that came up repeatedly. And it could be as simple as uh, people are taken from their bedrooms regularly. Um, and for any of your listeners who are unfamiliar uh, with the literature and subject and case histories, um, part of it is you are floated through a wall or a window or a ceiling, taken, examined, returned. Um, and certain things that are now in the public record, a, a pathological fear um, to the point of terror of a location that you will do anything to keep away from, even if it's a beautiful picnic spot you know, in your local park, um, a free-floating anxiety about being in a doctor's or dentist's often office that can reach um, such a pitch that you don't go to the doctor or dentist for years, which is not a good thing. Right, um, I guess that's like PTSD, really. Yes, yep. yes. Certain triggers. Um, um, my dear friend and colleague, um, um, uh, Mike Cleland has recently published a fascinating and very important new book. Um, oh, yes. And it, it has to do with how owls, the bird, keep emerging. Um, We've had Mike on to talk about that. Yeah, it's, it's a very yeah. good book, very good book. And I'm, I'm looking, I, I'm embarrassed to say, I saw Mike just a few weeks ago. Do you remember the, the title I'm looking at? Oh, The Messengers. The, the Messengers. The messengers, mm -hmm. exactly. Uh, which I highly recommend to a very original piece of work as well, and, and quite compelling even for folks not interested uh, necessarily in the UFO subject. Um, I, one of the most poignant for me, um, I, I remember once, but 
it's it's a classic example. Um, somebody who is making breakfast, and it, it's captured wonderfully in the miniseries Intruders that starred uh, Richard Crenna, the great character actor um, um, who played uh, the Bud Hopkins, actually Bud Hopkins hybrid John Mack part by the time they finished the film. Um, uh, Mayor Winningham, a wonderful character actress who, who played the part of the abductee, Debbie Jordan. Um, I remember her- seeing that thing when I was about maybe 15, and it, 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 that, that thing scared the hell out of me. Well, it should have. Uh, <laughs> Mayor Winningham, who has had a, a, a very uh, um, frightening abduction experience the night before, is making breakfast, and at a certain point just stares down into the frying pan, and the two yolks of the fried eggs are looking up at her, and, well... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, other things. Um, there's a list of, of them that... We never made public. Unfortunately, some years ago, a really unscrupulous person did make them public. Um, it got out to the public in a very limited way, and I, I hope that most people don't come upon it, because if they do, then you know it can be faked or uh, people can claim. Uh, but that profile, it was about 15 data points, and one of them was... People are examined um, on a metal table, and there is a particular structural detail about that table. It's not a big deal, but you wouldn't know it if you hadn't seen it or been on it. And that confirmation of that detail was another thing. And, um, you know, as I'm talking, I'm thinking how exciting it was for me um, knowing Bud at the time and actually seeing him, his, the way people perceived him in the world in 1981 change around the publication of this marvelous book. Um, I encourage people, by the way, to, who still read, um, to add his books to their library. And you don't have to, <laughs> you know, find a fancy collectible first edition. Um, you can find them online in paperback and things and, Um, The reading of them is the thing. But that book really opened up the territory in UFO research for more conservative researchers to begin to take it more seriously. And years ago, thinking back on that detail on the table, um, I was with Dr. David Jacobs, and I think... We were having coffee in the Philadelphia train station. I had finished a talk there, and he had dropped me off and had some time to spare. And one thing leading to another, he said, I want you to think about something. He said, somewhere out there on a planet or an asteroid or whatever, there's a factory, like other factories, and they make components for these UFOs. And there is a division or an assembly line or whatever where they make those tables. And he's quiet for a minute and went on to something else. I'll tell you what, Nick, I've never forgotten that moment. It was just like, I mean, it was so obvious, of course, yeah, these things don't grow on trees. They are manufactured. But I had never quite thought of it like that before. And that's a fact. And there may come a time, many years in the future, where we are in a post-disclosure world, and I don't think our government is going to acquiesce and disclose what they know 
on their own unless their hand is forced. Um, we seem committed to this uh, neurotic pathological secrecy, and that's the way it is here in the Western world. At the same time, I do think that um, there will be a future where people look back and say, you know, that time, at the end of the 20th century, the beginning of the 21st century, there was that very tiny cadre of people, of men and women, who put their regular lives on hold, sacrificed a great deal in terms of comfort, a uh, uh, secure lifestyle, and put their reputations on the line, took heat, took a certain amount of ridicule. But without them, we would not have had the basis to help us through the most challenging transition humanity has ever had to face. And we study them in school now. And nobody more than Bud Hopkins. Gee, I wish I had lived back then. I would have loved to have met him. What an interesting guy and what a wonderful writer and what a courageous individual. Well, I'm saying yeah, that I'm I'm saying that now. <laughs> yeah, I would have loved to have met the guy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What were some of the responses uh, from him from that he would give to his critics? Uh, I know that in the Wikipedia article about him uh, that there was uh, there was this whole thing about sleep paralysis and that uh, there was some debate there. What was kind of oh, his sure. response to to yeah. to the sleep paralysis idea? Um, and that's a, a very important point to bring up. There is this physiological, diagnosed, existing, actual condition called sleep paralysis right. that some people suffer from, where they may wake up in the middle of the night and they are unable to move, which has to be very frightening. And that is one aspect of a bedroom-type abduction. However, there, it is to confuse waking up in bed and not being able to move, with waking up in bed and not being able to move and finding your husband, wife, partner, whatever, if you're not alone, um, completely unable to wake up, um, a strange light flooding the room, small beings appearing at the foot of your bed, rising off the bed, experiencing being floated through a wall or window to, quote, Mark Twain, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is the difference between the lightning and the lightning bug. And it's such a silly argument. It's, it, it actually literally exemplifies the fear, the pettiness, the parsing of, well, because you couldn't move in bed, you thought you were floated out of your bed and taken away by other intelligences. Um, give me a blanking break. Uh, that's just so insulting. Um, Bud often ignored low-level critics. I mean, I deal with them on an irregular basis, um, and anybody worth their salt in any field of endeavor that is considered challenging, pioneering, uh, controversial, also does. However, when a serious um, uh, insult, um, nonsensical argument. Um, and when I say serious, I mean one that had the potential uh, to reach thousands of people. Um, his greatest critic was always uh, Philip Class, who, right. um, as my sister used to say, Philip Class, the man who has none, who was a professional <laughs> debunker. 
Philip um, um, emblemized for me the mantra, it can't be, therefore it isn't, therefore it's something else. Um, I, as I had my own interactions with him and as he took me apart um, in a book called UFO Abductions, A Dangerous Game, uh, the first um, uh, which I was told I should consider myself honored. Um, Stan Friedman told me at the time, you're nobody until Phil's attacked you. Right, right. When Travis and I became friends, we had several laughs that we were a chapter apart in um, being taken down. But um, what Bud would do, and it is a uh, philosophy and form I have always followed to the letter, is in addressing your critics, always, even if there are so many other things that you want to do, you need to do, if you're going to respond, never, ever generalize come at those um, questions, um, uh, those bon mots, those disdaining statements, people calling you a liar or delusional, in hyper-specific terms. Prove your case or make your case on every point before going on. Um, and then get back to work. But don't just say, oh yeah, I, I know you are, but so am I. I'm, you know, just the opposite, I mean, Pee Wee Herman thing. Yeah. Um, and the normal schoolyard thing of third graders. Um, but yes, he, he would do it in a methodical, organized way and always be pissed off doing it because there were other things that he wanted to do, should have been doing, and needed to do. Right. I feel the same way when I do it, but I pride myself on if somebody comes at me, um, I will come back at them and um, I will never generalize and more often than not, they will regret what they did. Yeah, because you just wrote a basically what well, was it, like a six hundred page response to the to uh, Colonel Halt, the oh, last book. <laughs> it's it's a much smaller response. It's okay, uh, one hundred and seventy pages. Yeah, I think about one hundred and seventy pages. Yeah, um, but yeah, that's a perfect example. Um, uh, Charles Halt, the former deputy base commander of RAF Bentwaters came at my co-author um, repeatedly, um, not with um, reasoned arguments uh, of where he disagreed with Larry Warren, but with nonsense and lies and made-up things, and his belief substituting for empirical fact, confusion, whatever. And so I had to take a good part of last summer to address everything that he said point by point. Once it was done, I cooled down and got back to work and only really address it in moments like this when somebody brings it up in a radio interview. Gotcha. I want to talk a little bit about the time that we have left yeah. about Bud's interactions and relationship with two people, and that would be John Mack and the other would be Whitley Strieber. First I'd um, ever heard about Bud Hopkins was actually reading uh, Communion. Yes. That's the first I'd ever heard of him. Many people were introduced to Bud through Communion. And for the three people in your audience that don't know Whitley's name, <laughs> yeah. years years before um, he was uh, world famous for Communion as an internationally best-selling book, as well as a um, a a very effective movie starring Christopher Walken um, as Whitley. Um, he was a 
fiction writer, uh, a successful fiction writer, for me, kind of a demi-Stephen King, sort of a, a gothic horror writer at times. I knew his name, um, not because I read his books, but because two of them had been made into films that I had seen. The one that sticks in my mind, um, and it, it ultimately did send me to reading the book, um, so it's a great film called Wolfen. Oh, yeah, I've seen it. O-L-F-E-N, about this kind of phantom wolf on the loose in Central Park, tearing people up. And the brilliant uh, British actor, Albert Finney, mm-hmm. playing a tough New York City police detective who is the one who gets the case. Um, one of the reasons, uh, besides the fact that Whitley, of course, writes about Bud in, in Communion, is that if you simply open the book, it's dedicated to Bud, who I, I think... Um, uh, hold it one sec. Pull my copy off the shelf here. The dedication is yeah, that's a very good movie. And I think the other movie was the was the Hunger. I believe yes. with uh, I think that was David Bowie actually was in that, right? Yes. Yeah. E- exactly. Exactly. Um, well, in the credits, he credits Bud with helping him save his life when uh, Whitley went through extraordinary um, series of events over the years preceding um, his need to write this book with his family uh, and friends who would visit um, the uh, cabin that he had in upstate New York. And um, he was beside himself, um, admittedly suicidal at times, when he found Bud, and Bud not only found him uh, a, a good therapist to work with, um, was there as a, a counselor, as a confidant, uh, and much to Whitley's great good fortune, um, Bud was the person who found, connected him up with the artist who did that um, extraordinary cover. Um, that caught the attention of millions of readers around the world, got them to pick up that book, buy it, and read it. Um, They had a very complex relationship, and it wasn't always easy. Um, I met Whitley. um, I knew, of course, as uh, Bud's assistant and confidant, that he was working with this famous writer, which I found fascinating. Um, It got me started to read some of his books, because, well, why not? And um, Bud had told me that he was coming toward the end of working on the manuscript, but had not told me anything else. And about that time, in early 87, um, I was cold-called at home. I lived on West... No, I was still um, on um, East 46th Street, around the corner from the United Nations at the time, and I got a call, and is this Peter Robbins? Yes. Hi, this is Whitley Strieber. Whoa. Uh, hello. He said, let me get right to the point. I know that you are aware of what has been happening to me. Um, I knew from the get-go that Bud spoke with you about this and that you keep it to yourself, and I appreciate that. I have finished my manuscript, and um, I asked Bud if there was somebody that he knew who... Um, number one, could maintain a confidence, um, was literate, 
ideally a writer and an editor, uh, familiar with the abduction phenomena, that I could get a fair opinion from to read the manuscript. And he said, Peter Robbins, and that's why I'm calling you. Wow. I was very um, flattered and asked him, uh, told him I would be glad to do it and send over the manuscript. And he said, no, um, it is not leaving the house here. He lived uh, in a beautiful loft on LaGuardia Place that's right in the um, uh, the southeast corner of uh, Greenwich Village. And he said, "I what I'd like you to do is come here on a morning that works for you and read it through. It'll take you the day. Um, we will feed you. We will, you know, bring you drinks, whatever you need. But I, I would consider it a favor. And so one morning, a little before nine, I showed up at the door. I had breakfast with them. He and his lovely wife, Anne, who passed recently, um, met his young son. Anne and, and his son had been involved in these events as well. And they set me up in the guest room, and um, I worked till uh, about dinner time. And I read that manuscript from beginning to end, gave him my thoughts. Um, there are certain aspects um, I, I still feel are deeply personal um, that came up between uh, Bud and Whitley um, that are nobody's business but theirs. However, um, there was never a time where um, I don't think... Uh, they disliked each other. Um, it's a complex subject, and these are complex men. Um, I, I'm happy to say that my relationship with Whitley is good. Uh, we are irregularly in contact and uh, have appeared at a number of conferences together and panel discussions and the like. About John Mack, I can say more. Um, John, for those not familiar with his name, was a Pulitzer Prize-winning um, psychiatrist, um, professor of psychiatry at Harvard, uh, founder of the Cambridge Hospital in Boston um, um, psychiatric wing um, from a socially prominent New York family who had the courage um, as a highly respected academic and mental health professional to become interested in this subject. Um, made it his business to come to New York and meet this Bud Hopkins person uh, to, as he joked with us after, to partially assess whether or not he was sane. Um, they became the best of friends. They disagreed on so many points, details, nuances of the subject, but they didn't just like each other. They loved each other. And there is out there, I, I forget the, the specific title, but it was done I, at a, a very uh, upscale venue in Boston, um, an evening with Bud and John on stage. And to this day, it is one of the finest, most literate, most thoughtful and thought-provoking um, recorded discussions between any two people in this field ever done. Um, I met John right at the beginning when he showed up at the studio one day and he caught me off guard. Um, I knew who he was because from 1987 or so until 1996, it was a total of um, eight years, I quietly worked on a, a weekly basis with a number of needed breaks as a crisis intervention volunteer 
for an international British-based organization called Samaritans International. Um, bluntly put, um, I uh, was a telephone volunteer, well-trained for a layperson, on the busiest suicide hotline in America. And um, especially on night shifts, you might have periods of time where there were no crises coming up, and we had a little library there, and one of the books was um, one of the most uh, respected books on adolescent and teenage suicide, written by Dr. John Mack of Harvard, really? which I read from cover to cover. Um, it got me, I, I, I learned a lot from it, but of course this was some years before John even had an inkling of the work or got involved in it. So when he showed, showed up, I, you know, I never met a Pulitzer Prize winner that I can remember. Um, and by the way, John's Pulitzer was for a psychiatric biography of T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. He was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. And unlike Bud, who is very rooted in what we'll call the Western philosophical model, mm -hmm. John, like many people who came of age fully in the 1960s, really felt that the Western model in some ways was bankrupt in terms of looking for profound answers to important questions and looked east um, into um, more esoteric philosophies, as many of us uh, young people did, and certainly considerably younger than John. But I remember, you know, having those same feelings at certain points and 20-year-old or whatever. Anyway, um, he treated me with eminent, respect from the get-go because I was Bud Hopkins' assistant. The fact that I had my magnificent BFA from the School of Visual Arts, and he was slightly more credentialed than me, meant nothing to him. And he and I developed a wonderfully warm friendship, but he and Bud sparked um, so much quality thinking in each other. And it's actually tragic to think how, you know, so many younger people who have grown up in the digital age where communication is all about thumbs and looking down um, don't even know how to have a conversation, much less a debate or a serious discussion. And these men, they were intellectuals. They were, they were pioneer thinkers. Um, they were both ferociously courageous in their intellectual pursuits and more. And hanging around them, for me, was one of the great joys of my life. I should also say that one of the things I miss terribly about both of them is they both had phenomenal senses of humor. Um, they could both crack me up in a second, and I miss that more than I can say. I remember um, after Bud, um, after um, um, John read Left at East Gate, um, the book I co-wrote um, about the Rendlesham Forest incident, he was so impressed that he contacted me and he said he was going to try to get me a speaking job at Harvard. Well, good luck with that, even for John Mack. And he came back and said, the hell with them. Um, you are going to speak at the um, psychiatric wing of Cambridge Hospital for the staff for faculty, for invited guests, and for paying public people. And I want you to do a, a two-part program to talk about the Rendlesham Forest case, and then we'll take a brief break, and you're going to come back, and you're going to talk about another area that I know you've pursued, which is managing stress 
in UFO studies, in individuals who have been through UFO-related experiences and researchers and investigators. It can get very stressful. And he joined me on stage for the second part of the program. Anyway, uh, when it was all over, he took myself and my brother-in-law, who had come along with me, um, 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 and about a dozen other people, some who worked with them, some friends, to probably the fanciest, most expensive Japanese restaurant in Boston. And we were sitting at a big round table having a wonderful dinner and great conversation. And John, in his own way, was kind of holding court and, you know, people laughing and talking. And I'm sitting here. My brother-in-law is sitting to my right and John is sitting to his right. And at a certain point, John turns to Jim and he says, Jim, I owe you an apology. I... um all I know is that you're Peter's brother-in-law, and I haven't asked you anything about yourself, and I know you know something about me and that you've read my books. Um, what do you do? And Jim says, I'm a physician and a clinician at the um, uh, Cornell uh, University Clinic. And John's eyes got big, and he started to laugh, and he started to laugh harder. And Everybody at the table stopped talking, and they looked at him. And he finally, I mean, he literally went over and slapped his knee. His eyes were getting shiny. And he said, excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he looked at Jim, my brother-in-law, and he said, you're a real doctor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Nick, when we would do um, Intruders Foundation seminars, um, we had an arrangement with ARE, the Edgar Casey Foundation um, which had a, has a beautiful little loft space in the West 30s in Manhattan, and we would rent it from them for uh, the agreed-on price. It wasn't a lot. Um, it could hold hmm, 60, 70 people pushing the fire eggs, and at the break, you know, we'd lay out very nicely maybe $50 worth of Pepperidge Farm cakes and cookies and tea and coffee and, you know, soft drinks and, and juice and whatever, the one time I heard John speak in New York, he um, spoke at one of the big, um, very distinguished, uh, uh, old-fashioned um, teaching hospitals on Upper Fifth Avenue. Uh, auditorium probably sat 1,200. There were certainly hundreds in the audience. And the reception was held in this huge space with sideboards along one wall with, I'm sure, thousands of dollars worth of the finest hors d'oeuvres you could imagine and an open wine bar and... It was so elegant, and at one point, he and I were chatting by the food table, and he saw my eyes go astray, and I was looking past him across the room, and he turned around, and he followed my eyes, and there on the far side of the room is Dan Aykroyd and his lovely wife, Donna Dixon. Uh, Dan, of course, for anybody that doesn't know, um, is a UFO experiencer, is ferociously... Um, out there about talking about his experiences, a member of MUFON who, um, you know, is an advocate for the work. He says, you know, Dan, don't you? And I kind of went, uh, you know, no. And <laughs> the very distinguished Dr. John Mack then turned around in this room with several hundred people and had cupped his hands to his mouth and screamed as loud as he could, Dan! And a lot of people stopped, and Dan Aykroyd looked at him, and he just, you know, flagged him over, and Aykroyd comes up to us. And he says, Dan, I want you to meet Peter Robbins. He's a big guy when you meet him in person. Well, everybody's a big guy to me. Um, 
his face lit up. He stuck out his hand. He said, left at Eastgate. We loved your book. Donna, look, it's Peter Robbins. Oh, Peter, we really enjoyed your book. How's Larry? But, but, I mean, well, that's nice. it's a terrible way to make a living, but sometimes the perks on the job are the best. Oh, yeah. Um, both Bud and I were heartbroken um, when uh, Dr. Mack was killed by a drunken driver in England. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I was fairly close on, probably 40 miles away or so, uh, when I learned that terrible news. Um, I, I was on a research trip over there. And I knew that a lot of colleagues and people interested in the work, even before the age of conspiracy, might responsibly assume that he had been murdered. Um, if there was one high-visibility person in the entire field um, who had the dream credentials we all hoped would accompany some researcher at some point, it was Dr. Mack. And I made it my business over the following months to quietly conduct my own investigation with maps of the location, um, background into the uh, uh, vehicular homicide perpetrator. I got hold of uh, some of the, uh, the court records, and I had to conclude that even if this was your hyper, you know, three-person CIA team with a Manchurian candidate guy with an earpiece, totally conditioned and ready to murder, that given the exact circumstances, nature, uh, the logistics of the, uh, the streets, it really would have been extremely um, improbable. However, this man was an alcoholic whose license had been suspended five previous times, driving without a license, phenomenally drunk legally, who went to jail, unfortunately, briefly. Um, but I had to conclude, because it's something that has almost happened to me a few times, and um, in June, I think I made my 25th trip over to the United Kingdom, um, and I know other Americans have had the same experiences. Sometimes you look the wrong way when you cross the street. Right. And you can get killed. Right. I can see that as being a very common thing because we're so used to looking a certain way at first. Like, I think yeah. we normally look to the right, then we look to the left. Yeah. And instead, you're supposed to do the exact opposite. And when you don't, that's and if there's especially someone that is inebriated. Yeah. I, I could definitely see that as a, yeah. as a common mistake. A lot of people still don't accept it because... Yeah. Um, it, you know, I, I appreciate if you haven't done the work that I've done, um, um, that it does make sense that if anybody's going to get murdered, uh, it would be Dr. Mack on this. However, uh, I will point out something that um, um, is sort of a standard response, namely that when a great or an important <clears throat> or a particularly decent person is killed in a senseless accident, we struggle with wanting to ascribe meaning to it. And meaning in this case would constitute, ah, he was threatening the establishment, people might start taking abduction too seriously, he was too eloquent a spokesperson, he had to go. Um, I'm sorry to say that the reason that um, explanation, which is um, very uh, rational in, in such cases, um, came to me right now as a moment... Um, on the 
40th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, um, when Bill Clinton was president, somebody who um, I never voted for. I voted for Perot the first election and um, Ralph Nader the second one. He did some things. He's a total ass on other things, did some bad things. God knows we're still stuck with these goddamn trade agreements. But he had the nerve on um, that anniversary to make a public statement, which I remember hearing, I think, uh, on the radio rather than television, that um, the same thing. You know, when a historically significant figures cut down by a, a senseless act of violence, by a crazy person acting alone, we have to ascribe meaning to it. And I thought, shame on you. Shame on you. If Lee Harvey Oswald even pulled that trigger, he hardly acted alone. Um, That's a whole other show. <laughs> that is, in fact, we'll come back to that. But I do have to jump. I, I have to yeah. take off. Well, I want to uh, just real quick. Like, yeah. what did you learn from Bud, and uh, what do you want people to most remember about him? And then also, what's what's next for you? Yeah, coming up. Well, um, thank you for stopping me. Uh, that's a great question. What did I learn from Bud? Um, to um, gosh, um, to be very methodical in your yeah. investigation. Uh, something that I, I also learned from my two other mentors, uh, a retired uh, Hungarian military uh, staff officer, Komen Bankovetsky, and. Uh, a tough, no-nonsense New York City police detective named Pete Mazzola, uh, both brilliant UFO researchers who taught me, like Bud did, to investigate UFO-related um, mysteries in as pragmatic and logical way as I possibly could. Um, the way law enforcement might investigate a crime, at the same time be open to my in intuition, at the same time, go through the hard work each time of deductive reasoning of not assuming the most dramatic, flamboyant, romantic thing had happened. But even if you've done it a hundred times, start with the most mundane, work your way to the second most mundane. And if none of the conventional explanations pan out, then go to, um, then things get interesting. But don't do the shortcuts. Um, to be a person of goodwill to always put the individual first. I don't kid myself. I'm not going to have the answers to the questions that were sparked 40 years ago in that conversation with my sister. Sure. I, the odds are overwhelming. I'm not going to have them. And you know what? I'm not only at peace with that. I put my attention not on what are the uh, other intelligences thinking? What do they have for breakfast? Do they have, you know, bases uh, under the oceans, which I'm sure they do, and underground, which I'm sure they do? And um, my focus is on people. Um, that is something that I can do something about, that I can help with, that I can be um, effective. Um, to be kind always, to be patient, to be respectful, to work as best as you can to help educate people as you do your investigations, um, to always remember life is short, have a good time whenever you can, um, celebrate life whenever you can, um, have as many friends as you can possibly maintain, uh, 
even if it takes your time. Um, I'm, I'm blessed with more real friendships than most people are. I work at it, and, and many of them are in places where I don't get to see them very often, but I love a lot of people, and a lot of people love me. Um, to, um, you know, I'm an artist. I, I was brought up in that sense, thinking um, right-brained and outside the box. Um, I apply that whenever I can. Um, to never become so focused on the work or your obsession with it that you lose sight of the other wonderful things in your life. And it's one thing that uh, I know Bud and I were very drawn to in each other. Um, Reading, um, going to museums, loving to travel, enjoying good food, um, adventures, company of good friends, um, laughing, joking, um, every once in a while, drinking uh, occasionally too much, um, <laughs> but living the best life that you can and having courage, having courage, uh, having confidence that you know you can always trust and lean on, um, and seeing life as the adventure that it is. Um, what else did I learn from him? Um, it's okay to be really messy, um, not be a good record keeper. Um, you know, put your priorities first and um, live your life as fully as you can, I guess. Very good words, Peter. That's very nice. As for what's coming up next, um, as um, I told you uh, um, off uh, the air, um, tomorrow morning I have a flight that will take me to Orlando. And hey, where would anybody else want to be in August except Florida is my question. <laughs> and um, uh, I will be picked up by dear friends who relocated to Miami a few years ago. Um, tomorrow night I will have dinner there. In the next few days I will make up lost time uh, from a computer crash early this week, getting ready to host an MC this year's International MUFON Symposium in Orlando that will take place uh, this coming weekend. And I hope anybody that can will attend. At the same time, let me parenthetically say, uh, I am sorry that I had a, uh, a scheduling conflict because from its inception, I have taken pride in and enjoyed emceeing and hosting a very different conference in a different part of the country that I also hope that anybody that possibly can attend will. And that is the fourth annual Experiencers Speak conference in beautiful Portland, Maine. Uh, my dear friend and colleague Richard Dolan is going to jump in and uh, be the emcee this year as well as featured speaker. Um, you can go online and go to the websites of um, the 2016 Experiencer Speak Conference, 2016 MUFON um, um, International MUFON Symposium, and I hope you can get to one of them, uh, if at all possible, next weekend. Um, I will then spend most of the remaining week in Florida um, as a house guest of my dear friend and esteemed colleague, Kathleen Martin, Martin and her husband, uh, and meet with a group I have wanted to spend time with for years, 
it's an abductee support group built on the model that Bud established, which we didn't even get into. Um, the support groups were very valuable to many people over the years. And um, spend time with them, do some workshops. Then a week from Friday, um, Kathleen and I and um, Denise Stoner, one of the most amazing people in abduction research that you have not heard of, who um, I absolutely adore. Uh, the three of us will fly from Orlando to Manchester, New Hampshire, where we will then um, do, um, we will be speakers at this coming, um, the Exeter, New Hampshire UFO Festival and Conference with a number of other great speakers, and that is over the um, Labor Day weekend. And it is a beautiful, beautiful part of New England. Um, it's very modestly priced. I hope anybody that's free that can get there will join us for that. I've got a couple of other talks pending as we move into uh, the autumn, but um, I'll leave it be at that. People can contact me um, uh, via Facebook, or they are um, welcome to visit my website at um, peterrobbinsny.com. And you and I have an event coming up, don't we? Yes, uh, I'm going to be in New York City in about three weeks from the time of this recording, and I have an excellent tour guide set up to show me around. Indeed you do. And I am really looking forward to, because um, we, of course, although we, we know each other on the air, we only met earlier this year when we were both working at the Paradigm Symposium um, in Minneapolis, which was a great meeting. And... Um, as many of my friends know, um, I am a passionate amateur historian of the city of New York, my hometown, and where I've lived most of my life, and um, do work as a professional walking tour guide, uh, but also do it for fun with friends visiting. And, and um, if you have a lot of money, I will be happy to take it from you. If you don't have much, um, I may be um, compelling you to buy me dinner. I'm toying with that. Uh, otherwise, um, I will. We will pack an awful lot of American history and New York City history into our walk, and uh, you are then free to go online and uh, get me some paying clients. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Peter. Stay on the line for us just briefly, and guys, we will be closing out this section of Conspiranormal. All right, guys, welcome back to Conspiranormal. Uh, this is your host, Adam. And, or, I guess, Nick, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, that, that was a good interview, man. What did you think about that? Well, I always love having Peter on. I mean, and yeah. there was, um, I, to be honest, I don't really know anything about Bud Hopkins. Like, that was, right for someone that's so prominent in, in the field, I, I really feel bad for not knowing more. But. I, I, knew, I knew some some fairly minimal things like i said i knew about the guy for a while I only read one of his books which was intruders which god that's that's a that's it's quite a book man i mean it it is it is a scary scary book and the mini series that was made out of it in the 90s i mean it it's it's freaky as hell <laughs> and that's on youtube if anybody i, I believe that's where i watched it last time uh, a few years ago 
you can find it on there. And uh, like the, I think the whole thing, I think it's in like about 10 different parts, wow. but it's well worth watching. Um, guy that wrote it was uh, a guy named Tracy Torme. He actually was a writer for Star Trek The Next Generation. He's actually like the son of Mel Torme, and he also wrote the the, the uh, Fire in the Sky movie about uh, Travis Walton. Mm. So it's well worth it's well worth seeing. Oh man! Well, I just wanted to go over a few things. Uh, it's been about really three weeks since we last met in here. As we recorded the show for the with the Leisure Hour about uh, three weeks ago. And of course, as always, there's a lot that's happened. And one thing that did happen is we had a we had a big party over here in the same space. Yeah, what? we did. Tell everybody <laughs> about that, Rob. Oh, it was great. We had a um, little punk band comprised yeah. of me and Lukey and Zach, who you all know. That was a lot of fun. I haven't performed in front of people, even like a handful of friends like that, in so long that it was just it was it was a blast. Um, yeah, it worked out great. Maybe just didn't call the cops or anything. Yeah, nobody. Yeah, that's good, true. Nobody did call the cops, and Alyssa over here provided the food. Yeah, <laughs> sure did. She's a woman of many words. How you doing, Alyssa? I'm good, Nick. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay. Yeah, you know, I mean, it happens sometimes. I think that uh, Peter's been doing a lot of. Uh, I think he's been doing a lot of interviews lately. So. You know, there's always that. There's always that confusion, right? I just hope he's not looking for Nick when he's <laughs> when, when when I get up there, in New York City. <laughs> That's the only thing I care about. So, right. you know, could be confused when Adam walks up, but it is what it is. And you know, we 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 really love and appreciate Peter. He's really gracious to come on the show to take his time to talk to us, and uh, he's always been a really big supporter of the show. So, and it was really cool to hang out with him and meet. Um, back in uh, Paradise Symposium back in May. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about Trump on this show. And I really kind of want to hit on Hillary Clinton for a little bit. Fair enough. Not hit on her. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. I think you're the first person to want to do that <laughs> yeah, in a long time. Not even Bill. Yeah, what well, was the last one? Bill Clinton? <laughs> hey, baby. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but, you know, I am so disgusted with either one of the candidates. Like I'm voting third party. I, I don't. I don't even care. Uh, kind of like what uh, what Peter said. You know, voting for Perot in 1992 and then Ralph Nader. It just. It is not. Either one of these candidates do not wow me. I don't trust either either one of them. I, I think that we've all kind of come to this agreement in here that the conspiracy theory is is that Trump is just a setup for. For Hillary to win to win the election with all the the stupid stuff that he says, yeah. right? But uh, th- there's been things that have happened uh, while we were taking our little three week break and partying it up. You know this this Seth Rich guy that was killed. Do you know about this? Yeah, that's uh, Julian Assange's uh, uh, lawyer, right? No, it's he was a DNC staffer. But there is a link to Julian Assange, ah, and okay. I'm going to play that clip here in a little bit. But uh, this did, is a... Did you hear about that, about Assange's lawyer mysteriously showing up dead? No, I did not. This is something I just heard about yesterday. Really? Yeah, I don't know the guy's name, but he supposedly was accidentally hit by a train. Uh-huh. Yeah. Really? Yep. Well, supposedly this guy, Seth Rich, was found in Washington, D.C. This is the early part of August, and... He was murdered. 
and the police said that it was a robbery. However, there was no no money was stolen from this guy. Just it was left on him. So there has been a speculation that he is the guy that leaked the emails to Julian Assange, that he was one of the sources. I don't know if he was the main guy because they blamed Russia for just about everything, but he was that he was Julian Assange's source. And supposedly Assange confirmed this sort of, and I want to listen to this clip here. This is from a Dutch television show. Donald Trump has had a disastrous few weeks. If you look at the polls, he needs a miracle. Um, in the American political lexicon, there's such a thing as the October surprise. The stuff that you're sitting on, is, is an October surprise in there? We Do you even know what you're sitting on? WikiLeaks never sits on material. Uh, our whistleblowers go to significant efforts to get us material and often very significant risks. As a 27-year-old who uh, works for the DNC, who was shot in the back, murdered uh, just two weeks ago uh, for un- unknown reasons as he was walking down the street in Washington. So that was, that was just a robbery, I believe, wasn't it? No, it's, there's no finding. So uh, that's what are you the suggesting? Sort of, what are you suggesting? Well, I'm suggesting that our sources uh, take risks and they, are, they become concerned uh, to see things occurring uh, like that. But was he one uh, of your sources then? I mean... We don't comment on who our sources are. Why make the suggestion about a young guy being shot in the streets of Washington? Because uh, we have to understand uh, how high the stakes are uh, in the United States and that our sources are... You know, our sources face serious risks. Uh, that's why they come to us, so we can protect uh, their anonymity. Uh, but it's quite something and, to suggest a murder. So, that's basically what you're doing. Well, that others have have suggested that uh, we are investigating to understand uh, what happened uh, in that situation with Seth Rich. I think it is. Uh, a concerning situation. Uh, there's not a conclusion yet. We w- wouldn't be willing to um, state a conclusion, but we are concerned about it. And more importantly, um, a variety of WikiLeaks sources are concerned when that kind of thing happens. Okay. When you, if you watch the video, you know, he doesn't really come out and say, yeah, he was our source. This is the guy. But it's interesting, first of all, that he brings him up in any capacity, it's kind of a non sequitur. Why, why even bring this guy up if the, he doesn't know him or, or who it is? Uh, the second thing is like you being that I got this from a video. If you watch the video, when he asked the, uh, the newscaster asked about, did, was this guy, was he, was he the source? And there is a very slight nod of Julian Assange's head. It's very subtle, but it's almost like he is acknowledging it somehow without actually coming saying, out and yeah. saying it. So, uh, very, very, very interesting there. Now, you know, I, I'm looking over some sources while that was playing and trying to find anything that's not completely biased, which, you know, is always just damn hard. Uh, you know, I was looking at a Newsweek article, and, and Newsweek basically is taking uh, 
right-wing conservatives to task for the, just generating conspiracy theories. Um, it, it is very odd that this guy was, he's a, a computer voting specialist at the DNC, was murdered in July near Bloomingdale, a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood in a once blighted area of Washington, D.C. Now, D.C. is a very crime, it, it can be a very crime-ridden um, city, and apparently this was a crime-ridden neighborhood, but what better way to to cover your tracks? And why would it be – why not just take the money to make it look completely like a robbery? I mean, that's that's awfully, awfully damn suspicious. And then uh, this the article is saying that it kind of poured fuel on the fire for uh, Assange to kind of come out and, and, and in a way, like we said, subtly confirm that this guy – was his was one at least one of his horses. So I find this extremely interesting. And this is all this all happened around the same time as the Democratic National Convention and the leaks that were coming out and all the different uh accusations about uh, how basically <coughs> the uh but the chairman Washerman Schultz had they pretty much had done everything they could to block Bernie Sanders from becoming the nominee. And it was very, uh, it, it just, it, it, it's awfully suspicious in my mind that, that this all of a sudden happens. Right. And even if, even if this was like a random isolated incident, which most, most murders are not random. You know, most most killings are not random. There's at least some sort of motivation, money, or which wasn't taken, or mm-hmm. you know, passion, or or whatever. Um, even if it was just a random a random killing, it's just one more suspicious thing on a giant pile of suspicious things <laughs> that have been going on in the past year. That like, you know, how many right. of these are they going to take before it's like this? There's no way that these are all coincidences. I'll real read a little bit of just some of the facts that are in this Newsweek article. Um, Says this was look what the date was that this that this actually happened. Um, doesn't actually give me a date, oddly enough. It just says murdered in July. That's kind of weird. But um, says at four nineteen a.m., police responded to the sound of gunfire in Bloomingdale and found him lying mortally wounded at the dark intersection, a block and a half from a red brick row house he shared with friends. He had multiple gunshot wounds in his back. About an hour and 40 minutes later, he died at a local hospital, possibly after identifying his assailants to the police. The cops suspected Rich was a victim of an attempted robbery, one of many that had plagued the neighborhood, except for an apparent anomaly. Police found his wallet, credit cards, and cell phone on his body. The band of his wristwatch was torn but not broken, and that was enough to fire up the right-wing Twitterverse with yet another round of Clinton conspiracy theories, this one claiming that Rich was murdered at dawn as he was on his way to sing to the FBI about damning internal DNC emails. Such sinister notions might have evaporated from their own weightlessness, but not Julian Assange tossed a conspiracy grenade into the affair a week, a few weeks later. The WikiLeaks impresario still pinned up in the Ecuador's London embassy, dodging a Swedish rape allegation. I love the language here too. You know, it's like just to spring up the rape allegation, by the way, which as I've understood is, is completely baseless. But anyway, announced he was offering a $20,000 reward for information leading to a conviction in the rich case. He, he hinted darkly that the slain man had been a source in the embarrassing 30,000 internal DNC emails his organization had recently published. 
The fallout had led to the follow to, to to the firing of top Democratic officials. So I guess don't mess with don't mess with Hillary Clinton and her rise to power in the White House. I suppose. Yes. Yeah. What do you think, Alyssa? Uh, I think she's a crook. I think she's a criminal. Yeah. I don't think she needs to be president. I don't think Donald yeah. Trump needs to be president. I think we have a terrible choice and. <laughs> That's what they gave us. I agree. We don't have a choice. I think a, any kind of system that would lead to these two people being the only candidates to become the next leader of our nation is a horrible, horrible system that needs to be completely revised from the ground up. Well, yeah. It's a slap in the face, too. It's yep. yeah. you're too stupid. It's an insult. This is what you. This is what you get, and you don't even really have that choice. I think Donald Trump was implemented because people were like, "There's no way anybody's going to vote for him." We're going to let people think they're have, that yeah. they have a choice, but then, you know, then they also didn't count on the fact that there's actually morons out there that will vote for him. And, and he seems to he seems to really do her work for her because all he has to do is open his mouth and say something completely stupid, and that gets that gets people uh, more and more people behind behind Hillary, right? And not wanting him to be uh, to be president. Well, and think about it. The thing that people hate about him so much, he's very vocal and open and showy about. Look over here. Look over here. And everything that, you know, that she has done or that has been done in her name is all very hush-hush secret. Yeah. You know, and it's like, keep all this quiet. And he's over here, like, distracting people with his complete ignorance and bigotry and disgustingness. Classic sleight of hand. Yeah. It's yeah. it's basically the government. Yeah. Sleight of hand. Pick a card, any card, but you just, you're going to end up with this one anyway. And his campaign has had so many, they've had, they've had so many problems recently. They've, they've had the, they had, they fired the, like the chairman of the campaign quit, uh, the head of the campaign quit. So like, there's been a complete reshuffle. In, in the Trump campaign, and you know, I, I really, I, I, seriously, I mean, he's just going to get her elected. I mean, this is just just pure and simple. And that's what he's and, there and, for. And, and she's she's completely evil in my mind. I mean, I used to really laugh and scoff back in the '90s about the whole like Clinton kill list. He used to did not take it seriously because my family and myself at the time were such staunch Democrats, you know, and. Anything that Democrats did was good, and anything the Republicans did was bad. You know that kind of mentality, and there's other people that have mentality, vice versa, right? And I used to think that it was just all that big right wing plot. Like that's what she said in the '90s, like that big right wing plot against me. The to it was, um, it was just I just thought it was ridiculous. But I do remember about Vince Foster. Vince Foster was somebody that was a Clinton aide. He had been he'd been associate with them for a long time. And he was found in DC in a park, two gunshots to the head, and it was ruled a suicide. Well, apparently he had all this information about this this insurance company that uh they had been the Clintons, I can't remember the name of it now, but they had been involved with this insurance company when he was governor of Arkansas and Foster had all this kind of information about it. And he was set to testify. And then all of a sudden he's found dead in the, in the park. And so, and also too, you know, knowing that Clinton was allowing this, 
uh, drugs to be flown into an airstrip in Arkansas called Mina, that they were allowing that to happen. And that was under the whole Iran-Contra thing in the late 80s. And it, it, seeing just that link there and those associations, he just been, began to think that, you know, these people are dirty. They will, they will, they will literally kill someone or ruin someone's reputation to, to, to get the presidency, to get the supreme power. And I, I think, I think Bernie Sanders, I think he got paid off. You remember he just bought his $600,000 home and everybody's been so critical about him. I think he just got paid off to support Clinton. Hmm. So who knows what kind of dirty tricks went on? We'll never know, and we'll never be able to change it. I mean, the only way that anybody's going to change it is if everybody gets on the same page. Yep. Well, yeah, and that's the problem is the only people that have the power to change it are the people who are benefiting from the way it is now. Right. Let's talk about this. This is something, the reason why I wanted you to sit in with, with us, Alyssa, was we want to talk about uh, Brendan Dassey. This yeah. is something we've not talked about very much on the show. Uh but here's a little article about it. A federal judge on Friday overturned the murder and sexual assault convictions of Brendan Dassey, one of the defendants whose case was the subject of the wildly popular Netflix documentary series Making a Murderer. Mr. Dassey, 26, must be released from prison within 90 days unless the authorities schedule a new trial, according to the order from a federal judge in the Eastern District of Wisconsin. In 2007, Mr. Dassey was convicted of participating in the murder and sexual assault of Teresa Halbach, a 25-year-old photographer, and sentenced to life in prison. The 10-part series by Laura Ricciardi and Maura Demos, released in December, suggested that police investigators unfairly questioned Mr. Dassey, then 16, without a lawyer or parent present. It suggested he was mentally unfit, was coerced into a confession that he later recanted, and that his court-appointed lawyer, Lynn Kaczynski, was content to cut a deal. What that guy was like a like he just he just looked that sounded like a rat in that in that show. In the ninety-one page court order, the judge William E. Duffin said state courts erred in finding that investigators never made Mr. Dassey promises during his interrogation on March first, two thousand six. The investigators repeatedly claimed to already know what happened on October 31st and assured Dassey that he had nothing to worry about, Judge Duffin wrote. These repeated false promises, which considered in conjunction with all relevant factors, most especially Dassey's age, intellectual deficits, and the absence of a supportive adult, rendered Dassey's confession involuntary under the 5th and 14th Amendments. The documentary also questioned the conviction of Mr. Dassey's uncle, Stephen Avery, who was also convicted of murder and sentenced to life in prison. Mr. Avery was not affected by the court order on Friday. Today, there was a major development for the subjects in our story, and this recent news shows the criminal justice system at work. Ms. Richardi and Ms. Nemo said in a statement, as we've done for the past 10 years, we will continue to document the story as it unfolds and follow it wherever it may lead. Now, if anybody doesn't know what we're talking about, this is fallout from the documentary series that came on Netflix at the end of last year called Making a Murder. It's about a 10-hour or like a 10-part series. And I watched it last year, and it's pretty phenomenal. It's about a guy named Stephen Avery who was convicted of a rape in the early 80s and sent to jail, but he was wrongly convicted. And he was in prison, I think, for what was it, 18 years? Right? Something like that. And a he long time. eventually gets exonerated 
through a chain of events that shows it was not him uh, through someone else's confession and through DNA. Uh, He comes back to his home county and two year, two or three years, I think he got out in 2003 and in 2005, this girl named Teresa Halbach, who's a photographer for a magazine, like a auto auto trader magazine. She disappears and he becomes a suspect in this murder. And they do find bones in her, his, in his, um, fire pit. Now, I don't know if Stephen Avery necessarily was um, is innocent. I'm, I'm conflicted on that. But Brenda Dassey was his sister's son. And, well, listen, you, you, t- you can tell the story a little bit. Well, you know, you know the story. Yeah. <laughs> Take it from there. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So my whole thing is going back to the fire pit, though. You also have to understand that this is there are three or four different like living areas yes, on this true. property. So this yeah. is kind of like a shared rural burn barrel, you know. So this isn't just this is like ten steps outside of his trailer or wherever he lives, you know. And so Brandon lives in a trailer with his mom on the same property, and. So this kid is, you know, he he comes home from school, you know, he's he's mentally, you know, slow or whatever. And apparently they found bones in they also found bones down um in a quarry that was yeah. a few miles away. Uh like someone had burned her and then moved her and who knows. <laughs> um but yeah, so basically they're saying that this kid and his uncle, she came to like take pictures or whatever, and they took her into the trailer and tied her up and raped her and killed her. Right. And so they go to question the kid. They pull him out of class. And there's a video in the documentary on the whole, you know, it's like hours long that they interrogate this kid with no no school representation, no parent. You know, to add minor, that he has a he has a low IQ. Right. He's he's you know he's in regular school, but he's a little slow. He has a learning disability. Right. And oh. so they're questioning him and uh, clearly coercing him and getting what they want out of him. And eventually, finally, he just basically agrees. And like you can actually see them say, "Yeah, but didn't you guys also do this?" And he's like, "Uh, yeah." You know, like he, they're just adding to it and he's agreeing with it. And the part that got me the most was, I mean, the whole time I was just furious because I could tell this kid had no idea what was going on. Yeah. He just, he was very uncomfortable and he just wanted to leave and didn't know what they were talking about. And they just kept pushing and pushing and finally he agreed. And then he asked, am I done? Can I go back to class now? He didn't even understand the gravity of what he just confessed to. Right. I mean, and in this country, you can get off on almost anything because they didn't read you your Miranda rights. You know, it's constitutional law. They have to have, a minor has to have a parent present or a guardian or some sort of, 
outside authority figure. In this case, also especially to a in lawyer. This case, right. And especially in this case, yep. he's, he's mentally handicapped. I mean, and he never left. He never got to go home. He never, you know, and it's, I mean, it's just clear if you watch the documentary that this kid is just, you know, he had the last 10 years of his life stolen from him. Yeah. He does get a lawyer, but he gets one of these lawyers that basically wants to plea, is there to, 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 to plea down and to make sure that, you know, that he, he's convicted by the state, essentially. I mean, it's, he didn't really get a, def- a defense lawyer. That was one of the... Uh, that was one of the reasons why this judge decided that uh, to 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 drop the charges, uh, and to poss to possibly move for a new trial. But the state of Wisconsin has to do it in ninety days. The other reason he said that they uh, that they dropped the charges on him was because they said the police, the interrogators, made these made false charges on him. Basically, using the language is everything is going to be okay, Brendan. We're, everything's going to be okay. We just want to find out what happened. And of course, everything was not okay. The kid goes to prison for most of his life. Uh, that was considered that was considered a false promise by this judge, and that's why he decided to release him. I don't know how it's going to affect Stephen Avery, but one interesting aspect of the case is, and I remember this from the show, was. Brendan's confession that he gave, uh, well, first of all, it didn't match with any of the evidence. They said that uh, they took Teresa Halbach and they raped her and they took her into the to, into the bedroom and they shot her or they stabbed her. Well, guess what? They go to this bedroom. You can see this in the documentary. There's no blood. Nope. There's nothing. There was never any, even any trace of blood. So if Stephen Avery actually did kill Teresa Halbach, then it happened somewhere else. And in my mind, did not involve Brendan Dassey. He was just pretty much made to to confess this. Now, what's interesting is is that Dassey's confession wasn't. It was even. It was deemed inadmissible in Stephen Avery's trial. It was actually said they couldn't use it in Stephen Avery's trial, but they used it against Brendan in his trial, even though yeah. it was it was deemed inadmissible. <laughs> this is how the how weirdly our court system works. You know, it, it's just it, it, that that kind of stuff is just from friggin' bizarro world. It, it, um, it's obvious. I mean, the thing is, is to me, even if you know Stephen Avery did it, didn't do it, yeah. you know that. I'm not 100% sure on. I don't think that he did it, but I don't know. It wasn't there. But I know Brandon didn't do it. Yeah. I know he didn't do anything. Yeah. I can tell just by the documentary. Just I mean, and people say, oh, well, that's just – they can edit it any way they want to. Well, there's good long clips, you know, unedited, good long clips of him being interviewed. Right. So I'm pretty sure that's not edited because right. there's no there's no break. But – I whether you think that Avery did it or not, I think everybody that watches it or understands the case has to agree that it's at least at least needs to be overturned and have a new trial for Avery because it's a gross misuse of evidence and procedure and I mean they've literally come out and admitted that it was not handled properly yet there he sits. You know, and there's yeah. enough, you know, I understand that some stuff might not have held up some stuff, you know, but I think that at least I think at least he needs to have an actual, you know, another actual fair trial. And I think it needs to be done outside that county. 
I yeah, think it sure. definitely does not need to happen for in that sure. County. And it, it could not, it could not even go to trial. I mean, this the state would have to decide whether they want to actually uh, bring it back to trial. I believe they have. Well, from ninety days, it'll be less than ninety days now. I, I also wanted to point out too that this is very similar. And it when I watched the uh, the documentary, I'm making a murderer. It's very similar uh, aspects to this that happened with the West Memphis three case, because in that case you had uh, three defendants that were accused of killing three little boys in West Memphis, Arkansas in 1993. And one of those, and what was the pretty much the linchpin of the, of the defenses of the uh, prosecutions was uh, I think his name was miss Kelly. I think Jimmy miss Jesse, miss Kelly. Uh, the other guy was Damian Eccles. I can't remember the other kid's name. Stephen Baldwin, I think was his name. And uh, they maintained their innocence. Well, Miss Kelly apparently had confessed, and they made a big deal about this confession that him and Damian and Stephen killed these two, these three little boys. However, Miss Kelly, as well, had a learning disability, uh, was actually considered mentally deficient, and uh, the same tactics. He was by himself. Um, he was made several promises that they just wanted to find out what happened. Um, he was interrogated for a very, very long time and eventually just gave them the story that they wanted to hear. So it's very similar to the, to, to the, uh, Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey case. So this kind of stuff with the police interrogation I mean, that's uh, plenty of false confessions have been wrung out of people just because of some, and I hate to say it, the psychological torture that some of these people right, have Right, I was under. just going to say, this is literally like mental torture, you know, and especially to somebody who doesn't understand what you're even talking about, has a learning or mental disability, like that's, that is torture. Right. And for other people, you know... You have an entire police force at your at your disposal to come in and interview people so you can just keep on going and you can keep that person in that room for however many hours you want to, you know, and not give them food and not let them use the restroom. I mean, and it is it's mental, you know, torture. Yeah, till we get what we want. And a lot of a, a lot of it is the fact that a lot of these investigators um they come they they already have in their mind who they blame for a certain certain case. Right. I think the Stephen Avery case is a is a perfect um example of that as well as the West Memphis 3. They already have it in their mind, so they already want to find something that's going to fit their story. There's also things about West Memphis 3 that you know the police did not follow up on like I told you about the guy that uh uh, the black guy that he's called Mr. Bojangles because this black homeless guy walks into a Bojangles restaurant covered in blood and uh, leaves blood all over the all over the bathroom in the Bojangles. Well, the Bojangles people call the cops, right? They call them. The lady, but and and they do dispatch a lady cop over there, and she, but she takes the statement in the drive-through, never from the drive-through window, never goes inside the store to look at the blood stains. So, not saying that that was the murderer, but at least it was something that could have been followed up on, right? But 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 a lot of the things at West Memphis Three had to do with this whole satanic panic stuff, which I want to I want to talk about on some other show. But you know, this was the time period that satanic panic was going on, and Damien Eccles, you know, Stephen Baldwin, they were these 
they were these uh, weird kids. And nowadays would be like goth, right? Or, right, metalheads, yeah. you know, and 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 they may have said things just kind of just just trolling uh, the police or trolling other people. What we would call trolling now, right? They but, were they were butthead little teenage yeah, kids, and and so and, but they were blamed and said that that was it was a satanic ritual, and these these three kids were killed because of that. And there's a lot of people that still believe that. I want to uh, I want to leave things in kind of a I don't know I don't know how funny this is but uh, Alyssa I think you can relate to this as well being a former waitress. No. Oh. This is uh, this is how this is how wonderfully divided we are in this country, people. So I just bring this up to say that this is what. Uh, this is the this is the age of Donald Trump right here. <laughs> Customer stiff waitress, right? We only tip citizens on receipt. Most food servers get tips from customers when they do the job. All Sadie Elledge got was a xenophobic insult. On Monday, the 18-year-old waitress was working the lunch shift at Jess's Lunch in Harrisonburg, Virginia. At one of her tables was a couple that ordered two euros and a salad. Elledge told WHSV reporter Isabel Rosales that she gave them decent service, but when it came time to pay the $26.11 bill, she found a surprise on her receipt. Instead of a tip, there was a note. We only tip citizens with the signature of one Ada M. Doriot. I thought it was real disrespectful, she told Rosales during a Facebook Live interview. Elledge, whose father was born in Honduras and whose and mother and mother was born in Mexico, is a U.S. citizen who grew up in Harrisonburg. She told Rosales she didn't make a big deal about the insult, mainly because she's used to it. I've had people make comments like, go make me a burrito, but that's at school and I don't pay attention, she said. Elledge's grandfather, John Elledge, was more shocked by the receipt. She was calm and collected, John Elledge told the Huffington Post. I was more upset. Elledge is an attorney, but his granddaughter did not mention the incident to him at all. One of my other granddaughters works at a firm as a secretary, he said. She told me, and I flew off the handle. He also posted the receipt on his Facebook page, where it quickly went viral. The restaurant has since pulled surveillance video from the time of the incident to find out what happened and why. As a result, John Elledge said the incident has become a cause-celeb in Harrisonburg. The way I understand it, the woman who signed the receipt is at the restaurant this very second with the police, he said Thursday afternoon. She's angry, and the police are there. Apparently, she just signed the receipt, but she didn't write the comment. Sadie Elledge isn't looking for fame from the encounter, but hopes others can learn from it. It doesn't matter whether I'm Hispanic or American or whatever you want to call it, she said. I'm still a person, and you should still treat me with respect. WHSV-TV reached out to the woman accused of signing the receipt, but she has not yet responded. The restaurant manager told the station the customer has since been banned from the establishment. What do you think about that? Wow. (laughs) We only tip American citizens. Yeah, that's... uh... Now, I'm a little... I'm going to go out on a limb here and say possibility... You know... This could be one of those clock boy things. You remember the clock boy yeah. that brought the yeah. the cl- the clock the strip down clock to school, and yeah. the people thought it was a bomb. The teachers thought it was a bomb, and when well, he was an Arab kid, but it turned out that the father put him up to it because 
his father was in a lot of uh, this same district, school district in the same town, have been trying to implement the anti-Sharia law stuff in the town. And he had uh, actually put his son up to bringing that in to cause even more problems. Oh, geez. That, that, that actually has kind of now been proven that that had happened. And that's what you had, you know, you had Obama saying, nice clock. You know, I don't remember the kid's name, but it was like, nice clock. Uh, tweeting out about that, so I'm still I'm a little leery about this story that it could be a setup. Right. Well, and that's what. But I'm people thinking do too. leave assholeish comments on receipts. Well, yeah, they do. But at the same time, like you also have to think about it. Like, okay, I was a server from the time I was 16, so long time. We won't get into exact numbers, but you know, when you're 18. You know, she's still kind of a kid. I mean, legally not a kid, but still kind of thinks like a kid. And say, you know, she's waiting on these people, even if she was doing a good job. And, and, you know, there are just assholes out there, and maybe they didn't leave her a tip, and they were jerks the whole time. So maybe she scribbled that on there, and, you know, it has the lady's name on it. Like, I've definitely had times where... I've been really pissed off at a customer, like really <laughs> yeah, yeah. pissed off. Yeah. Like, I wish I could ruin your day. Kind of pissed off, you know? And so, and as an 18, you know, now, look at back, I mean, I never did anything like that. I never did anything gross. Just, you know, kind of dealt with it and went home and, you know, drank right. a six pack and got over it. But, <laughs> you know, like they're, you know, people get mad and. You know, if you can stick it to somebody, there are people out there that don't have a problem sticking it to somebody like that, you know. But I'm not saying that it's not real either because, just like I said, there are yeah. assholes out there. Yeah. So, and, 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 and we're also we're living in. We're living in a real in a time right now where everything is so divided. You know, you've got this rhetoric that's coming from both sides of the political spectrum. Right. Uh, what if she overheard them talking about how they support Donald Trump and she was like, "All right, yeah, it's po- know, that's a possibility." Know. Or they actually did write it on there because they're just they're just a holes and they right. just they they just wanted to stick it to the man, make some kind of political political point. You don't know. I mean, we we covered the story few months ago about the tow truck driver that wouldn't tow the woman that had the Bernie Sanders sticker on the car. (laughs) And that was a real, and that was a true story. You know, he did it because he was quote unquote a Christian. So yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, so really who knows? I, I think this one will, I think this one will bear watching, but it would not surprise me if someone was like listening to Fox news or talk radio be like, yeah, she ain't American, even though she is. And also right. the point that Rob made, well, you made a good point about that. But how do you assume, assume that someone isn't white to make sure that they're... Oh, yeah, just because she's not white. And yeah. I mean, and obviously they're eating gyros. They're in some kind of ethnic restaurant somewhere, like, yeah. enjoying some other culture's food. And they just assume that. Like, right. And, and the people that own it were immigrants, they said. So they were they were apparently offended. Right. So... All right. Well, I think we're going to call it there, guys. Uh, I think we're good on time, Rob. Oh yeah. So tip your servers, folks. Yeah. Just, just leave a tip. Yeah. Don't be, don't be an, don't be an, don't be an asshole, no. please. Unless they're horrible servers. <laughs> but then talk you know, to the manager. You know, even then I'll <laughs> leave. Even then for. I'll leave a tip, man. Even, even then, because I mean, right. I, I know what it's like. Even too. then, only leave a dollar or two. You know, like yeah. hey. I was going to tip you like, you know, 20%, but, you know. Having worked in the restaurant business for a long time, 
And, you know, there's always factors that, that a server or someone has to deal with. You know, who knows? Right. Maybe that maybe the cook is being slow. Maybe he's being it. Maybe he's being an asshole, you know? Right. You know, you just, you, there's things behind the scenes that you don't see and, right. you know, just, just have a little bit more compassion, you know? Exactly. If your server is that terrible or, you know, they say something disgusting or, or being completely unreasonable, just talk to the manager, you know? Well, next time, and maybe for us, maybe an hour and a half, we've got uh, Rebecca Roth coming back on. And we're going to talk about her book, Methodical Conclusion, and some of the other things that she has found out about 9-11, considering we're getting pretty close to the 15th anniversary. And guys, we are going to leave you with a very special treat, and that is our very own Luke Skyrider singing My Heart Will Go On from oh, Titanic. That was for all great. of you. And guys, we will see you next time on Conspiranormal!
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.